Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if someone has a pew Bible and you want to shout out the page number, that might help everyone else. 1079. So turn to page 1079 in the black hardcover pew Bible there in the chair in front of you. Go to page 1079, 2 Peter chapter 2. The 2 is the big number. When I say 1 through 10, those are the small verse numbers if this is your first time looking at a Bible. We want to talk about being aware of false teachers. We want to think about this for the next two Sundays, this Sunday and next Sunday from chapter 2. We'll take the first half this week and the next half next week. So if you're there, hear the word of the living God from 2 Peter chapter 2. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains to utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, Distressed by the depraved behavior of the, of the immoral, for that righteous man lived among them day by day. His righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, this is our prayer, that your word from 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10 would dwell richly among us, that we would be thankful for your word, that we would not be hearers only, but believers, knowers of your word, believers of your word, doers of your word. We pray that it would shape our hearts and minds we need to know the truth, but we also need to trust the truth and live in the truth and grow in it. And Father, apart from your son, Jesus, we can do nothing. So we want to very specifically have abide in Christ and his words abide in us that we might bear fruit. Help us to not waste our time this morning, but to grow. And help the children as well as they hear your word to grow and to be saved even there in the children's classes this morning. We pray for those who are not yet Christian that even today you would open their eyes to the gospel, to your goodness in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week I had the privilege of gospelizing a Jehovah's Witness. A Jehovah's Witness this week, um, he said that, we, so I asked him what he believed and what's the main message of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He came back and asked me what the main message of Christianity was, and so I got to share the gospel with him, and I talked about God making us and 
us being sinners deserving death and Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead and how all who repent from sins and trust in Jesus Christ would be saved. And as the conversation continued, he said, oh, we agree on the Bible and we agree on repentance. Um, I try to point out to him where we significantly disagree. And that's the very issue, that the gospel is not clear and to many people. And many people think they believe the Bible and they think that they have the gospel or they think that they're going to heaven or to have eternal life just because they have a Bible and they name the name of Jesus. And as Christians, we want the gospel to be clear so that many come to hear because faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So we want people to hear the true, clear message of the gospel because there are a lot of false ones out there. We want Christians to be clear on true Christianity. We want our churches to be clear on true Christianity. This is our heart's desire because we want Christ to be glorified and honored in our world. We want his name to be honored as holy. The problem is that there are so many cults, so many churches, so many religions that seem to confuse the world on what the truth is, what true Christianity is, on who Jesus is and how you receive him. On the other hand, so that's, that's the big problem that we're going to talk about today, but on the other hand, we're not going to talk about this other problem. You have rightly confessing churches that won't unite with another church unless they agree on like secondary and tertiary doctrines. And so you have one that just wants to agree on everything. Then you have, another, you have other churches that have the right gospel, but they are too demanding on what truths need to be held onto for true Christianity. And the result is a confused world and confused churches and confused Christians. This is frustrating for some. I find it frustrating. I think some of you would as well. And this causes some of us to maybe be cynical and resigned, saying, what's the point? I can't answer everyone's questions. I don't know everyone's religion and all the cults. And so I can't, since I can't answer everyone's questions, I sort of feel guilty being content to just shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know, it's a confused world. And we know as Christians, we need to do more than that, don't we? With our neighbors, we can't just shrug our shoulders and just be like, I don't know, there's a lot of views out there. We're, we're called to share the gospel of life with people. And it feels a little guilty when we just don't know how to communicate that. We know Satan is sowing all kinds of deception and lies in this world and confusion. And we want to be light and truth. We want to show the light and the truth. If you're not a Christian, I have um, news for you this morning. You can know true Christianity in the midst of a multitude of opinions. And Christians of Bethany Baptist Church, our church doesn't have to be discouraged. We don't have to be deflated in the midst of confused Christianity. Here's the main goal of this text, I think, applied to you. Trust in the Lord in the middle of confused Christianity. I think that's kind of the essence of it. Trust in the Lord in the midst of confused Christianity so that you continue to move forward. And moving forward is really the theme of Second Peter. So you either grow or you fall away. There is no middle. So, so that, we're not going to talk about that, that, that much here, but, but the main burden of this text is that you would trust in the Lord when there are confused Christians in our church, outside of our church, confused churches, and you could get discouraged and deflated. No, don't get discouraged and deflated. Trust in the Lord in the midst of confused Christianity. Keep moving forward. That's our only option, and Peter helps us with that here in this text. And so the way we're going to unpack this main goal and this passage is in two points, okay? Number one, don't be surprised by confused Christianity, 
okay? Don't be surprised by confused Christianity. That's verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, we're going to dip back to verse 5 and forward, but in verses 9 and 10, we're going to look at trust the Lord in the midst of confused Christianity, okay? So don't be surprised. It's here. Expect it. And then secondly, trust the Lord in the middle of it, okay? Let's look at those one at a time, and our, most of our time is going to be on the first eight verses, maybe 40 minutes or so, okay? So just um, keep that in your mind as you're tracking along. So number one, don't be surprised by confused Christianity, and this confused Christianity is led by false teachers. It's led by false teachers. Let's look at uh, what, what I want you to see here in verses one through eight is five characteristics of false teachers, okay? False teachers, here are five characteristics of false teachers that, um, that lead us to not be surprised that there's confused Christianity today. Number one, let's look at it, verse two. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So there's the big idea that there were always false prophets. When the prophets start rising up with Samuel and others, there are always false prophets next to the true prophets. And just as there are false prophets during the kingdom, united kingdom, divided kingdom, the exile, the return from exile in the Old Testament, during that time, there were always true and false prophets, always saying the same, always talking at the same time and contradicting each other. Confusion is not new. Just as it was back then during the kingdom of, of Israel, so it is today in the new covenant church. There will be false teachers among you. And here are the five characteristics. Number one, they will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. So number one, they spread heresy. They spread destructive heresies. What is heresy? Now, if you know church history, we just use heresy as shorthand now to say um, a false teaching that blocks people from being saved. A false teaching that that if you functionally believe that false teaching, you cannot by definition be a Christian. So we just use heresy. But heresy, the word itself in the Bible, doesn't mean that yet. It just means an opinion. So it's not just an opinion here. What kind of opinion is this heresy? Look at it. They will bring in what kind of heresies? What kind of opinions? Destructive opinions, okay? So Peter just means a dogma or opinion, but when you put destructive in front of it, he calls it a destructive heresy. Nowadays, we just say heresy. But heresy just meant opinion here. It's fine to call it a heresy. But in church history, what is a heresy or false teaching? It's a false teaching. It's not just a false teaching. It's more than a false teaching. I had a friend who said, hey, PJ, isn't a heresy just any false teaching? Um, I said, well, if that's true, then we're all heretics. Because all of us believe some false things, right? I mean, does anyone here know everything true and they're never wrong on anything? No, we all have some false teaching somewhere. But we're not all heretics. Heresy is when you believe something that actually causes you to deny the gospel or to deny salvation, to deny, deny who God is. Okay, so it's more than false teaching. In the early church, it meant going one of the first seven centuries of the ecumenical creeds. So we recited the Apostles' Creed today. There's the Nicene Creed. There's the Chalcedonian uh, formulation of who Christ is. There are creeds in the early church about who Jesus is, God and man, the Trinity, that if you deny these things, you're denying Christianity. You can't be a Christian and deny these things. They that's what we would call orthodox teaching of the church. I have a former master's seminary, master's university professor who not only became a heretic, but now started a podcast where he's perpetuating his teaching. It's not enough for him to know this. He stopped believing that Jesus is God. 
He just believes Jesus is, a, is the Messiah, the King, Son of David. When it says Son of God, it means King of Israel, which is true. But he's saying that's all it means. Doesn't mean God the Son. And he started a podcast, and he's trying to spread it all over the place. That's what that's what they do. They don't only believe it; they work to spread the heresy. Now, as a pastor applying this to you today, it's more than just the seven creeds of the or the the creeds of the early church, because heresies still still continue on. So, if I was applying it today, I would say that um, a heresy is a supposed Christian opinion. Here's my definition: a destructive heresy or a heresy is a a, a supposed Christian opinion that if functionally believed blocks saving faith in Christ. If you functionally believe that supposed Christian opinion, you actually are blocked from saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what a heresy is. Now, to have saving faith in Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, let me just tell you what the gospel is. So if you're not a Christian, maybe this is the, the time to, to listen in. The gospel that saves people is faith in Jesus Christ. But to understand who Jesus is, you've got to understand who God is. God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God made the world, and he made you in his image to relate to God, to relate to each other, and to relate to this world. God made you to enjoy him forever. Yet we rebelled in our sin against God. We have rejected God, and the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so the penalty for our rebellion is eternal death. And yet God in his mercy, sent his son Jesus into the world. And when, when he was born into the world, he, he was named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus li- lived the life we should have lived as truly God and truly man. He lived the life we should have lived, died on the cross for sinners, and rose from the dead. So that everyone who repents from their sins and their goodness, as I'm trying to make this clear to the Jehovah's Witness friend, repents from their sins and their religion and their religiosity, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, will be justified, will be saved, will be accepted by God and forgiven, and given the Holy Spirit. So if you're not a Christian, God is inviting you even this morning to turn from your sin, to turn from your goodness, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. That's the good news, and God is offering it to you right now through my voice. Okay, so if a church denies that gospel, or particular points of that gospel, it's a heresy. Okay, and so beyond the seven ecumenical creeds, I would go so far as to say that if a church denies justification by faith alone and it preaches you're accepted before God, not only by faith, but also by your works, by the sacraments, by baptism or the Lord's Supper, that that would be a false gospel. Okay, if any church or Christian functionally believes that one is justified by faith and the sacraments, the ordinances or other works, then that is heretical. It would be a false church as an institution. I say that today because we're in Southern California. And the Roman Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, is, um, is prominent out here. I was born and raised a Roman Catholic. And so we need to understand as Christians, here's what the Roman Catholic Church believes, officially. I'm going to read to you one of their canons from the Council of Trent. If anyone says, and test yourself, here's the Roman Catholic message to you. If anyone says that by faith alone the ungodly is justified... In such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtaining the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be accursed. So if you believe that you're justified and declared righteous or, well, for them it would be made righteous. If you believe, if you believe that you're declared righteous by God, fully justified and declared righteous by faith alone, 
and not by your cooperation of works, then you are cursed by the Roman Catholic Church. That's their official teaching. And what I'm saying is that that contradicts the gospel and contradicts justification by faith alone in verses like Galatians 2, 15, and 16. When you're saved by grace or you're justified by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. So you need to know that. Okay, this is just very practical, but if we're going to get Second uh, Peter right, you need to know biblical truth. So here's an application right away. Know our confession of faith. Do you know our church confession? Or if you're from another church, do you know your church's confession? Is it sound? And do you hold to it? Or is it just a piece of paper? Come tonight to our evening gathering as we go over our confession of faith here. Understand the categories of heresy versus what is necessary to organize denominationally. Because we're not just Christian. We are a Baptist church. But Baptist is secondary. Christian is the big category, right? That we love and trust Jesus. So we need to know what that category is. And we also need to know this because we're a church that wants to be healthy. But come tonight and think about these things because not everything is on the same level of importance. Not everything is a heresy. But look at verse 1 again. There's another theological issue here that we need to deal with. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying who? They're denying the master who what? Who bought them. They deny the master who bought them. What does it mean that Jesus bought them? Did Jesus buy? Did Jesus pay for Christians? Did he pay for the church to be saved? Yes. He paid with his own what? He paid with his own blood. He died for, for those who would believe to come to faith in him. He, he took the condemnation for them. We said the wrath of God. We sang it. The wrath of God is satisfied. He paid the price for our sins. But here it says he even bought those who are false teachers, those who will not be saved. In what sense did he buy them? If he paid for the penalty of their sins, why would they go to hell and pay for the penalty of their sins? Do they have to pay twice? Is God unjust? Is God unjust? No. So does it mean that Christ paid the penalty for their sins and took on the wrath of God for them and then they have to take on the wrath of God again in the lake of fire for all eternity? No, it doesn't mean that. So what does this mean that he bought them? And I'll give credit here to my brother Travis, Pastor Travis from Grace Harbor Church. We talked about this last night. The word here for master is despot, despot, and it refers to someone who, quote, one who has legal control and authority over persons, such as subjects or slaves. So you might know, you, um, there was a basketball team here in LA, the Clippers, and they were bought, they had a bad owner, and he was kicked out, and they sold it, and now this new owner of the Clippers bought the team. When he bought the team, he didn't just buy the team, he bought every, like in, in terms of who became his employees. Everyone in that organization, right? All the players, all the staff, they were all under him, he bought them all. He bought the organization and everything that comes with it. Did he keep everyone in the organization? No. And so if you buy a business, you buy the whole thing, but that doesn't mean you intend to keep everything that you bought and paid for. So when Christ died and rose as, as the master of the world, remember he said in, in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. I paid for all of it. I died and rose. And so the whole world is mine. Everything is to be put, put under my feet. And so in that sense, I paid for all of this. And yet, so in that sense, he paid for everyone in that regard through his death and resurrection. But he does not intend to keep the rebels that he owns by his death and resurrection. He intends to punish them, as we'll see, forever and ever. So I think that's what it means here. He bought them in the sense that he bought the world, not that he paid the wrath of God for their sins. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense to you. But let's move on. So that's verse 1. 
they spread heresy. Let's go to the second characteristic of false teachers in verse 2. Many will follow their depraved ways. So what do, we ha- what do we learn there? If many will follow their depraved ways, these false teachers um, deceive many. They trick many people. That's point number, or that's a second characteristic. They trick many people. They are deceptive. They are effective in tricking people. Peter, Peter was deceived, wasn't he, for a little bit? Do you remember this? I've told you this story many times because we're going to keep going back to Peter since he wrote this. Peter was the one who said, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. My father in heaven told you that. Wow. The first identification of Jesus as the Messiah given by God the father himself to Peter. Then Jesus says, hey guys, guess what? I'm gonna die on a cross and I'm gonna rise on the third day. And then Peter pulls him aside and says what? Jesus, you are not going to that cross over my dead body. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are not concerned with God's concerns, but with man's concerns. Here's Peter who loved Jesus, was devoted to Jesus, and yet even he could be deceived right after saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see how easy it is to be switch, to, to switch over, to be deceived by false teaching and false teachers and satanic teaching? It's very simple. So these, these teachers will deceive many, even in our own churches, even in Bethany Baptist Church. They can be deceived. If Peter can be deceived right after confessing this great confession, so can you. They will deceive many. They will deceive many. Pastors can be deceived. Members can be deceived. Paul talks about how even pastors can rise up and become wolves in the church. That's scary for Ben and myself and Johnny. It's true. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The false prophet in Revelation 13 is one who can be seen powerfully persuading the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira to syncretistic teaching. You guys know we've spent many times in Revelation 2 and 3. And there's false teaching weaved in to the church where you can be part of celebrating the Roman Empire and declare Caesar as Lord and yet still be a Christian. You could do both, they thought, they thought and taught. And so they're compromising in all kinds of ways. And so this sneaky teaching is weaving itself into churches that have the right confession of faith. It happens everywhere. So they deceive many. Let's go to the third characteristic in verse two. In verse two, uh, many will follow their depraved ways, but that was the second one. The third one is, the way of truth will be what? The way of truth will be what? Maligned or blasphemed by them. So they malign the truth. They blaspheme the truth. What does that mean? They slander it. They revile the truth. They defame the truth of the word of God. They speak irreverently or impiously or disrespectfully of or about God's truth. Do you know anyone who speaks disrespectfully or irreverently or impiously? The first prayer in the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer is, our Father in heaven, let your name be honored as holy. Let your name be honored as holy. The second command of the Ten Commandments, do not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. We speak too lightly of God, and that's what they do. They take the truth of God, precious truths, of the Trinity, of who Jesus is, of who we are in our sin, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and they talk about it so lightly, so irreverently, as if it's just a debating point. It's just because we want to talk and argue and win an argument and persuade people. 
And so they slander, they malign the truth, they devalue it, they belittle it with their words, with the way they talk about it. In, in the Psalms, in Psalm 1, they're called mockers, scoffers. We should speak reverently about the truth and God's word in the Bible. It's not really a joking matter when we talk about the things of God and his word. But these false teachers, they malign the truth. So they spread heresy, they deceive many, they malign the truth. Fourthly, look at verse 3. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. They exploit, they will exploit who? You. And the you there, going back to chapter 1, verse 1, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, Christians. So who are they going to exploit? Christians. Churches. These false teachers will exploit churches. And it says here, they'll do it with what? In their what? They'll exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. They'll make up stories and exploit you with their greed. What are they after? Money, power, respect, influence. They are greedy for these things, and they will exploit and use you for their own personal exaltation and gain, for their treasure. They, they will do business with you to rip you off. They don't really care about those that listen to them. They care about taking from those who listen to them. And they do this in their greed with made-up stories. One pastor in Latin America said the prosperity gospel. Have you heard of the prosperity gospel? It's this, it's this gospel that if you sow seeds of faith, then God will bless you back with money. And God wants to make you rich, you know, healthy, wealthy, and, and, and rich, and prosperous. And so if you just give money to the church, and you sow a seed of faith in giving, then God will bless you, and you'll become rich too. So you want to get more money? Then give more money to us, to me to this church. So um, Suhel Michelin, I think I'm saying his name right, he says, the prosperity gospel draws people in, it in because it creates a cycle of guilt and greed. When the offers of riches or health take long to materialize, people blame themselves for their lack of faith or for not being generous enough. So they keep giving money like, why, are we not, why am I not getting blessed yet? Oh, I'm not giving enough. I need to give more. This guilt combined with the greed in their hearts keeps them clinging to these evangelists False promises, just like the gambler goes back to the casino again and again, hoping that one day he will get lucky. Let me quote one of these false gospel, false gospel, prosperity gospel teachers. Uh, Gloria Copeland wrote in 1973, we have been called to finance the gospel to the world. Now, I'm not really, I don't have any problem with that. We have been called to finance the gospel to the world. Why did you give? We give to establish this church. We give to spread the gospel through this church and through other churches, right? Our Southern Baptist Convention of Churches, our other churches that we encourage here, the missionaries we support, we give to finance the gospel to the world. There's nothing wrong with that. But then it goes on. They talk about the law of compensation. According to this law, which is purportedly based on Mark 10.30, Christians need to give generously to others because when they do, God gives back more in return. This in turn leads to a cycle of ever-increasing prosperity. And here's how she put it. Give $10 and receive $1,000. Give $1,000 and receive $100,000. In short, Mark 10.30 is a very good deal. You get, you, get, you get 100 times what you sow. That's the teaching in the book. She wrote that. They exploit people in their greed with made-up stories, made-up lies. Brothers and sisters, Bethany Baptist Church, do not be surprised by false teaching. 
Do not be surprised by confused Christianity. Not only outside of the church, don't be surprised that some of our members are confused by false teaching. Satan has been sowing seeds of deception among God's covenant community all the way since when? Since the Garden of Eden, right? With Adam and Eve, he was already sowing seeds, even there among the covenant community. Before they ever sinned, there's already deception going on. So with Adam and Eve, to Moses with the sons of Korah, the other Levites who were complaining, or true and false um, prophets during the kings in exile, or the Pharisees and other leaders with Jesus, talking about whether he's the Messiah. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians with the super apostles versus Paul, who is a real apostle, all the way now to the new covenant churches even today. There has always been, there has always been, there has always been false teachers and false teaching alongside the truth. Always. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. This is part of Satan's game. It's part of, it's one half of his strategy. The other strategy would be pressure and intimidation and suffering. So that's the fourth characteristic is that they exploit churches. And then the last characteristic here of these false teachers is verses three all the way to verse eight. So this is a longer one, but let's, let's go through it. Verse three, not only will they exploit you in their greed with made up stories, their condemnation pronounced long ago is not what? It's not idle. And their destruction does not sleep. What is he saying? Their destruction does not sleep. Their condemnation is not idle. What's the opposite of idle? Active, right? Their destruction is, their condemnation is active. God is not like closing his eyes or too busy with Christians that he doesn't see the false teachers. He is actively condemning them. And his destruction on them is not sleepy. Sometimes we see non-Christians or false teachers prosper. Actually, some of the best prosperity gospel preachers are the richest and they have the biggest crowds, don't they? And so you see them prosper and you look like a little churches like these and you're thinking, what? Is God sleeping? Is the destruction sleeping? Is the condemnation idle? And God is saying the destruction is not sleeping. Their condemnation is not idle. It is active. So this fifth characteristic is that they are actively condemned right now. They're actively condemned even right now. Well, okay, you say, you could say that, PJ, they're actively condemned right now, but look at them. They seem to be prospering. How can we know that they are condemned if they seem to be getting away with everything? How can, the Roman Catholic Church has, what, one billion or is it two billion people under their institution? How, how can you say that, they, that, you know, that God is protecting the truth and, and judging false teachers when they seem to be getting away with everything? Well, Peter gives us three arguments or three examples to prove his point and that's verses four through eight okay three examples here of the fact that they are actively condemned and they're not getting away with it let's look at these three examples verse four he didn't spare angels for if god didn't spare the angels who sinned but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment so that's the first one did god spare the fallen angels yes or no did he actively condemn them and judge them yes or no Yes, he did. That's the point. He didn't spare angels. Now, God has eternally condemned sinful angels. This is probably referring to when God cast them out of heaven in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and let them roam on earth, and they started copulating with, with women, and, and this is right before the flood. The sons of God and the daughters of men getting together. That probably is what it refers to. Jewish teaching has thought that, and maybe Jude 6 is pointing to that. That might be one way. It could refer maybe to... Revelation 12, 7 through 10, where God defeats Satan, casts him out of heaven and all, and all his uh, angels with him. But the point here is that God did not spare them. 
God judged the unrighteous angels. So don't think God won't judge the false teachers today. He will. That's the first argument or the first example. The second example is in verse five. Verse five says, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. So here's the second example. He didn't spare the ancient world from the flood. God, you got some of you, if you don't know the story, um, right after the sons of God, at the daughters of men, there was wickedness on the earth all the time. The thoughts and intentions of the heart was evil all the time. So God was fed up with men and women, with, with humanity, and he wanted to kill them all in judgment, to righteously execute them in judgment for their sin. And so God decided he was gonna flood the whole world to kill them all, to judge them. And so God killed people in the flood. Many people, actually everyone in the world, except eight people. This is the greatest natural disaster. We could call it a supernatural disaster. This is the greatest tragedy of all human tragedies, historically speaking. God judged them. God executed all of them by drowning. They thought that judgment wasn't coming. We don't know how long it took for Noah to build the ark. I looked it up last night to try to get an idea. And answers in Genesis probably gave the best answer I could find, which is anywhere from 55 to 75 years. You could read why. We don't know. But imagine building an ark for 55 to 75 years. Now, Noah lived up till 500 years, started having kids at 500. This is all before the flood when they're living long, longer. And then um, I think when he was 600-something when, when the flood came. So 55 to 75 years of building an ark. Imagine building an ark and nobody knows what a flood is. And he's explaining this to people that God's going to flood the earth. And so God calls him here a preacher of righteousness. And they thought judgment wasn't coming. They thought judge, the, uh, the rest of the people thought judgment wasn't coming. They thought that their condemnation was idle and their, 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 that their destruction was asleep. But it wasn't. For 55 to 75 years or whatever, however long it took, there was a testimony, a sermon, an example that your judgment is coming. It is not idle. It is not sleeping. So Noah lived obediently and must have proclaimed this righteousness in a way that showed that these people, though they thought they were free, they weren't. So don't get it twisted. God will judge. That's the second argument. There's a third argument. So not only did he not spare angels, not only did he not spare um, those in the flood, thirdly, look at verse six, he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse six. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to what? to ashes and condemn them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. So here's the story of him raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me read to you some verses from Genesis 18 and 19 to give you the story. I'm gonna read a, an extended um, text here, but I want you to imagine the story that Peter's referring to here. Genesis 18, 20, God said, it says, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And their sin is extremely serious. And in Genesis 19, beginning in verse 12, I'm going to 25 with some skipping there. Genesis 19, 12 and following, here's what it says. Then the angels, they were in Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the angels said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Get them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So just to give you a little idea of what's going on here, um, 
even when the angels stayed in the middle of the plaza of the town, Lot brought them in, and then men came to the door, banging on the door because they wanted to sodomize them. They wanted to have sexual intercourse, men with these angels who were appearing as men, men with men. That's what they wanted. So same-sex sexuality, sexual intercourse. And so, so he says, get up, get out of here. God wants to destroy this place because um, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, and get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, I love this, because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small, it's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too, and I will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up. Run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land when, Rot, when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of, here's the judgment. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. He destroyed it all, the whole area, raining down fire or burning sulfur from the Lord. God supernaturally destroyed a whole city for their sins. So, we, so when you get to 2 Peter 2 here, it says, if God can do that, God will judge. His judgment is not idle. The destruction is not sleeping. So you have the false teachers who spread heresy. They deceive many. They malign the truth. They exploit churches. And they are actively condemned, even as there's a confused Christianity all over Los Angeles, all over America, all over the world. That's always been the case. Christian, church member here, don't be, dis don't be surprised or discouraged by this. God will judge the false teachers and he will judge false Christians. Church family, as a church, let's hold our members and our teachers and our pastors, let's hold each other to the confession of faith. Hold each other to the confession of faith. For the universal church, what I might call the gospel Catholic church, not the Roman Catholic church, which I said is a false church, but the gospel Catholic church, all those who believe the true gospel. What I might say is, let's, with all true churches, let's cooperate with other churches and Christian ministries carefully and thoughtfully. Let's be clear on what's heresy and what's not, and let's cooperate in all the ways that we can with a clear conscience. If you don't know what that's like, you could read our cooperation statement in our Confession of Faith or in the Baptist Faith and Message of our convention. It has a statement on how to cooperate well with other churches of other denominations. Let's do that thoughtfully not recklessly. If you're not a Christian, you might say, okay, PJ, how can Christians know that they have the right way? Isn't it arrogant to think that you have all the answers and all the other churches are wrong? Isn't that arrogant to think that you have the only way? 
and that your answers are the right answers? My response might be something like this. Is it arrogant to think that if you don't have all the answers, you can't have any answers? Or another question might be, if you say that there is no one who can know the right way, if you say there's no one who can know the right way, is that statement that no one can know the right way a right statement? How do you know that that statement is right? Because you're saying that you, the right way is that no one can know the right way. But how do we know that that's the right way? So how are we going to know then? Well, for us as Christians, we're not leaning on our tradition, though we honor tradition. We're, we're not leaning on our church ultimately, though we love our church family. We are leaning ultimately on God's word. What are you leaning on for your opinion that no one can know the right way? Is that just your own thought? Did your teacher tell you that? Why do you think that you can conclude that, that no one can know the right way? Don't be deceived. Learn the true story and the true message of Jesus from the Bible with biblically faithful teachers and test the teachers to see if what they're saying lines up with the Bible. Children, got some children here. Children, listen up. Read your Bibles and pray every day. Simple, right? Right, Ezra? Read your Bible, pray every day, fill your head with the Bible, and ask God to show you his truth. Ask God to show you his truth. Keep praying that. Keep reading. Ask God to fill you and guard you in the truth. God warns us so that we're not unnecessarily deflated by the commotion of confused Christianity. Okay, so the main goal again, trust the Lord in the middle of confused Christianity so that you can continue to move forward. Okay, that's, and point one was don't be surprised by confused Christianity. Now let's go to our second and last point. Trust the Lord in the midst of confused Christianity. Trust the Lord in the midst of confused Christianity. Look at verse 9. So here's, if, if angels will be judged, if angels were not spared, if the, flood, if the people in the flood were not spared, and if um, Sodom and Gomorrah was not spared, then what? Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to what? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who, are, who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. God, so we learn here, if you're going to trust the Lord, what do you need to trust the Lord for? Trust the Lord for two things, that he knows how to rescue the godly and he knows how to punish the ungodly. He knows how to distinguish the two. Sometimes it's confusing for us, right? Sometimes it's confusing for our churches. Sometimes it's confusing even in the midst of our own members. But God is not confused. God knows how to rescue the godly. He knows how to rescue the righteous. And he knows how to keep the unrighteous and the ungodly under punishment, even when it's not clear to us. So let's think of those one at a time. He knows how to rescue us. He knows how to punish them. First, in verse 9, he knows how to rescue, it says here, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Who did he rescue during the flood? How many did he rescue? Eight, right? He rescued Noah's eight. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He flooded the whole world and executed everyone except eight because God knows how to save the eight. He knows how to rescue them from judgment and trial. And then let's think about Lot. He rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his two daughters. His wife didn't quite make it out, if you know the story. But he rescued righteous Lot. And it's interesting because when I read Genesis, I don't think of Lot as righteous. I don't think of him as necessarily unrighteous. I just, it's great to get this Bible verse to get some light on it. But notice that it calls, go back to verse, verse 6 or verse 7 and 8. It calls Lot righteous Lot. And what do you notice about Lot in verses 7 and 8? 
If he rescued righteous Lot, who was what? How do you see his righteousness? He was distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. That's a mark of righteousness. He was distressed by the depraved behavior of the moral. It stressed him out. It was a burden to him. He was not indifferent to the immorality and to the, the ungodly behavior and the destructive behavior of his neighbors. Look at verse 8, another description of righteous lot. For as that righteous man lived among them, how often did he live among them? Day by day. This word is powerful. His righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He was distressed. He was tormented. Can you relate to that? Are you distressed by the living you see around you? Are you tormented? Do we cry out in deep burden over the immorality, the duplicity, the confusion, and the lawlessness toward God that we see all around us? Or do we scoff and condescendingly look down as if we're better? Are we stressed out? Are we tormented? Does it bug you that the name of Christ is not honored as holy? Are you moved not with self-righteous condescension, but are you moved with loving distress for your neighbors and for the nations? God rebukes me here, and maybe he rebukes you too. God rebukes us and calls us to not be so callous, to not be so busy, to not be so preoccupied that the shocking horrors of sin we see so repeatedly become the new normal in your mind and comfortable on your conscience. God forbid that our members, that I would let this continue to remain comfortable on my conscience. This is not normal. God is the norming norm. God defines what's normal. And so let us be stressed. So that's what, that's what happened to Lot. Lot was righteous. He was distressed. He was tormented. And the good news is that God knows how to rescue the righteous. He will rescue you. He will hold you fast. He will save you to the end. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In Christ, you are secure. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. You are secure in Christ. He knows how to rescue the godly. He knows how to rescue the righteous. But he also knows how to distinguish the true from the false, right? He also knows how to keep the unrighteous and the false under judgment. Verse, verse 9 through 10. Notice here it says, he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and we've talked about that. But look at this description of the unrighteous. This is not just the false teachers now, it's even those who follow them. Especially those who, and be careful because this could even be our own hearts, let's look in the mirror here, this can happen to us. These are people who are following the false teachers in two ways. What are they doing? They follow the what? Polluting desires of the flesh. So our brother John came up here and led us in a prayer of confession. Some of the polluting desires of the flesh. Not all, but a lot of them, right? And we need to be aware of that and hating it and abhorring it and confessing it and repenting. But these people, they don't, they follow those desires. They don't repent. And they also do what? This is big, especially in America, especially in Los Angeles. What else do these false Christians do? They what? Despise what? Authority. They don't like other people telling them what to do. They, they hate verses like, obey your parents, obey the government, Romans 13, or obey your leaders in the church and submit to them as those who keep watch over your soul. 
or submit to the congregation as they exercise the keys of the kingdom. They don't like to be told by others what to do. They despise authority. They have been tricked by Satan the way Eve was tricked by Satan. Is God's authority good for us or bad for us? It's good for us. It's life-giving. If Adam and Eve did not eat the fruit and pass the test and got glorified bodies and we're in the new heavens and the new earth, how amazing would that be? That God's authority is for our good and protection. But those who follow false teachers, they hate the right authority. They hate righteous authority. They despise it. They malign it. They mock it. And God knows. And he's able to keep them under judgment. So he keeps the unrighteous for the day of of judgment, especially those who indulge in the desires of the flesh and those who despise authority, despise accountability. Now, Christians and churches, are we responsible to distinguish between true and false Christianity? Yes, right? We are, we, are, we are responsible as a church to define the true gospel versus the false gospel. We are also responsible as a church to define a true Christian versus a false Christian, right? That's what we do when we exercise the keys of the kingdom. So here's an application. We need to be good as a church. We need to be faithful as a church in functional congregationalism. Functional congregationalism. What's, func- what's congregationalism? It's when the church family, the 96 members, we had 97 last week, 96 now, the 96 members of Bethany Baptist Church, where we together exercise the keys of the kingdom in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in gatherings, in members' meetings, and in shared life together. We exercise the keys of the kingdom as a church family. We make clear what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. We make clear who a Christian is and who a Christian isn't. And we need faithful churches to confess Christianity and to be made up of those who are personally and actually, credibly faithful to Christ. We need churches to define that well. We need our church to define that well. But we also need to understand the limits of congregationalism. Congregationalism is also saying that every church is autonomous or independent. Just like I have three brothers, I got two older brothers and a younger brother, and we all have our own families, and I have a father, and he has my mom and dad, and so when we were in their home, we are under their authority. But as we came out and, and got married, we, we're still very much indebted, and we want to honor our parents until we die, but we became independent families, didn't we? And so we could influence each other, but there's an autonomy among our families. My dad doesn't tell all of the brothers what time bedtime is for our kids. We all do that autonomously. We could influence each other. We could share our opinions, but there's no authority formally. And that's how churches are. That's why we call them sister churches. Because even though they might be a daughter at first, like my, my son, you know, he's my son, but eventually he's going to become a man. Well, we already declared that, but as he grows into that independence, he will just be another peer to me in many ways. And I will need to guide him, not as a father giving him as if this, my parental authority, children obey your parents, but as a, as a godly man to another godly man, Lord willing. That's what happens in churches. They're autonomous. But here's the limit then of congregationalism, if you believe that. We can tell a church what to do. We can give them our opinion, but we can't what? We can't force them. So guess what? If we say, this is the true gospel, and that church says, no, this is the true gospel, what can we do? We could just say, well, you're wrong, and that's not a true church. Well, they say to us, well, you're wrong, and that's not a true church. And then we say, that's all we can do. That's the limit of congregationalism but we need to be faithful to do that. So, so we say that a church is wrong, they might say we are wrong, and so um, if, if that happens, we should understand that churches must be clear as possible and go back to the Bible, but only at the end, who's the final judge? God, not Bethany Baptist Church, right? Jesus is the final judge. 
So we say to another church, we think this is the gospel. We believe this from the Bible. And they say, no, this is the gospel. Then we say, well, you know, the Lord's going to judge in the end. But we do our best. Every church ought to do their best to study the Bible, to teach the biblical gospel, and to hold it up in contrast to all of the false gospels. And at the end of the day, we trust the Lord ultimately, not our church, not our church confession, but God and Christ and his word. So Christian, trust that God will get you through. He will get his people through. He knows how to rescue you, but it will be in his time and in his way in whatever context he places you in. So to summarize, don't be surprised by false teachers and don't be confused, or don't be surprised by false teachers and confuse Christianity. Instead, trust God to rescue us while he judges the false Christianity and the false Christians. Now, let's go back. It's, or it says here, the Lord will keep the unrighteous under punishment. The Lord will keep them under destruction. That's not idle, but active. God will condemn them. It's not sleeping condemnation. And God will even bound the angels in utter darkness. And God will do this because he is perfectly righteous and just, isn't he? God is righteous to judge sin, right? He is. And then it says this. Let's go back to verse 9 because I think this is the key. The Lord knows how to rescue the what? Read it again. Look at verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. He rescued Noah and his family. He rescued Lot. He even rescued new covenant saints like us to this very day. But there is one that God refused to rescue. There was one who never sinned, who never maligned the truth, who never exploited people in greed for his good, but instead did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he gave that up to become a servant. There was one that asked for another way, asked for rescue. Let this cup be passed from me. Ask for the condemnation and the destruction to be passed from him. But instead, though the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, would not rescue this one. He would tell him no. The cup would not pass from him. Instead, he would be made sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. First, First Peter 3.18 says this, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Praise God that though he knows how to rescue the godly, he did not rescue Christ on that cross. Rather, he judged him, not for Christ's sins, but for ours, so that we can know the truth, so that we can believe the truth, so that we could trust the Lord to deliver us from our trials because he didn't deliver Christ from his trial. Not on that cross he didn't until the resurrection on the third day. Praise God for Christ's death for us. So brothers, sisters, here's the call. Be a faithful and growing church member. Master the church confession of faith. Test it by the Bible and humbly, here's one practical thing, humbly identify, just practice in your own life, humbly identify one false teaching in another religion or system of thought this week. Exercise your mind. Think about other religions and, and find one false teaching that you can identify so you can exercise your discernment of doctrine. If you don't exercise your mind in this way to hold on to the truth, you might become confused, you'll be deceived, discouraged, and you might even fall away from Christ and follow a false teacher. But if you hold on to the truth and exercise your mind towards the truth and trust God, or if you do that, you'll trust God through his word, you'll grow in your faith, and you'll shine Christ's bright and true light in this dark world of lies. 
and confusion. May God help us hang on and trust him to rescue us in the midst of confused Christianity. Let's pray. I'll give you a minute here to pray on your own, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father in heaven, help us to hang on and trust you to rescue us in the midst of confused Christianity. Grant us love, discernment, humility, joy, and hope in you. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to speak the truth in love. And help us to be patient with our neighbors and with one another to this end. Hang on to us, Lord. May not one of our 96 members be lost to confusion and fall away from false teaching. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.